And as Chris said, it is coming up to four o'clock and I will be eternally grateful to him. Today, the history of Mexico, part one, with Dr. Ralph Newmark, who's the Director of Latin American Studies at the Institute in La Trobe University. Part two of my interview with Marion Mayer, who's the Director of the African Centre for Biodiversity. A report back from the International People's Conference on Mining in Manila. The life and music of the voice of the Sahara, Marion Hassan, who died two weeks ago. And Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association will be talking about Marion. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, let's see what he's got to say. A weak journalist, when the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission Hanging Judge, Mr Justice Dixon, no hiding his bias, A-O-Q-C-U-P-H-I-M-S-E-L-F, delivered his verdict. In this matter, he deliberated, I find for myself. Poor Dixon, locked in a moral wrestle between being sprung, speaking of sprung, just today spring has, it's all uphill from here we hope, between being sprung and his ongoing obscene remuneration. Indeed, he added, in the end, if there was any perceived bias, and my very erudite and extensive judgment on myself shows there was not, but if, as the evil unions, it is my important job, my social responsibility to destroy, claim there was any semblance of bias, it was a bias to my necessarily secret but greatly appreciated obscene remuneration. Even without the irrefutable, untested allegations delivered to his honour by his necessarily secret but also obscenely remunerated great chambers mate and Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolger writes, untested mainly because, well, roughly 100% because his honour, in his unbiased way in most cases, refuses to allow the lurid allegations to be cross-examined. Not that the media, which splashes the sensational allegations all over P1 or news leads, has bothered to correct the record when cross-examination has proved them baseless. Well, he's on a nose. Why take the risks? Just ban them being tested. But even without Jeremy's balanced prosecution, Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, has unearthed another sensation, another terrifying threat to our security. The evil unions are pursuing this witch hunt against the Kanga mission, a blatant witch hunt against a great true blue Aussie because the Kanga mission was about to expose a direct connection, a direct connection between the evil unions and the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. The evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. Uh, how can you say that? It just rolls off the tongue, rolls off the tongue. No, it is in the attachments to the terms of reference to the orders we had at the Kanga mission, and that is an official government document which proves it must be true. And this revelation shows just how evil the corrupt unions and Socialist Party are, that their immorality, their evil, their corruption can spread so far that no one is safe from their evil corruption, their evil corruption. 
their links to the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. The evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. Mr. Justice Dohydenes Bias said this frightening revelation, and coming from my very, very, very close friend, and now I'll rephrase that, from no lesser person than the big Supremo himself. No one can dispute its veracity. There, there will be no need to test such reliable evidence when my very, very, very close, or no, sorry, uh, the Crown Prosecutor, Mr. Stolger, writes QC, presents them to me. This frightening revelation further franks my decision to maintain my obscene remuneration. And showing why he's Attorney General and also a QC, a member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's Council, George Brandy's brain said any suggestion of bias was erased by his mates, or, or Mr Justice No Hyde and his biases ruling, that he wasn't biased. Wonder if Brandy's brain ever won a case. One worrying fallout from poor old Dixon sitting as judge and jury on himself has been this spate of applications by common plebeian criminals demanding to adjudicate on their own guilt, or more particularly, their own innocence. My client has studied the prosecution case against her, him, and finds her himself not guilty. Counsel, you know an accused can't rule on her or himself. That, that is a case of clear bias. It demands a neutral, empathetic person like me to make those decisions. Your Honour, my client would like to bring a clear precedent to your attention. No, seriously, there's no comparison. Dixon is an honourable man. He's honour. Two bitter commercial rivals, the Falfax and Lord Rupert of Wapping Empires, were so concerned about the damage the evil unions are doing to the greatest little economic order of them all, they got together Wednesday to hold this National Economic Summit, bringing together all these great practitioners of the greatest little economic order. Well, just to show the depths to which their evil has descended, that threat to national stability, the Maritime Union, got hit for 215 grand the other day for the heinous crime of calling scabs, scabs. They even confronted the poor scabs with Jack London quotes. The fair work true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like an ombudsman, told his honour the scabs had suffered loss due to marginalisation, apprehension and fear of violence. Poor dears, and the honourable scabs were awarded all this compensation. When are unions and lazy, avaricious workers going to learn there is no such thing as class struggle? Anyway, on such matters, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition told the gathering of co-practitioners, We fail if we live in a class warfare world. Our focus should be on bringing interests together. And the ACTU co-practitioner Dave Oliver for Capitalism... I'm looking forward to engaging with the business community and other organisations to focus on the significant challenges facing our nation. The other co-practitioners must have been shaking in their boots. No need to outline their ideas for getting us all together. Higher productivity with lower wages, more government subsidies and grants, from the lower taxes they must have to, they must have to be competitive on the great level playing field of world's best practice, 
lower taxes funded from higher taxes. Well, higher tax, the one truly fair tax which taxes the poor, allowing the rich to provide for the poor more of those drops of yellow liquid trickling down. Why Dave Oliver for Capitalism sat down for weeks before the big event with the Chamber of Profits and the True Blue Aussie, the GST must be in the mix, Council of Social Services, to draft the Talkfest's final statement. Former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawke himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer Paul would have been so proud. While on media moguls, that bloke or guy over there in the US of the UN of the US of the world who shot the TV presenter and camera operator. Well, the guy, the shooter's also dead, so he won't hear our advice, but if you've got a bitch against your caring employer or caring ex-employer, don't shoot the other workers. Shoot the caring employer. Give the boardroom a spray. Let them realise it's people who kill, not guns. Guns have nothing to do with it. And if we felt pity for poor old Dixon faced with such a moral dilemma, spare a thought for poor Tiny, getting the bad news, as we said last week, the disastrous news about the unpopularity poll, even more unpopular popular than little Billy's unpopularity, while showing he really cared about the terra nullius people and what ingratitude when some of them suggested the deficiencies, the, the occasional signs of poverty and disadvantage, were exacerbated by the very cuts Tiny had made in helping these people he so cares about, all the while weighing up whether or not we should obey the orders we requested from the US of, well, let's be honest, begged, to join the US of in creating lots more refugees from across the world whom we can turn around and sink or lock up for the, for the term of over and above a bit of collateral damage. Gee, it's hard to know which way he'll go on that one, isn't it? On refugees, the dump them in Cambodia plan has proved to be mastermind material with all of four refugees stranded in Cambodia at a current cost of roughly 16 mil a head to the true blue Aussie taxpayer. Well, taxpayer, of course, excludes Tiny's friends, but what value for money? And when Cambodia said it couldn't take any more, that mind-of-the-century minister for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, said Cambodia would realise it has an obligation to be an international citizen. Uh, on refugees? No need to comment, really, other than to give the deep-thinking Pete the Mouth award. More danger. In defending his candidate in this by-election, a trained killer, Tiny said, They're, they are role models for the community and everyone should behave like them. Everyone should behave like them. Why would he want us to kill each other? Finally, the trained killer candidate is called Hasty Death. This is a man who has saved us from being overrun by evil Daesh Islamic terrorism. Evil Daesh Islamic terrorism. And I say to all train killer heroes, cream of true blue Aussie youth, young men and women in uniform, loving, decent true blue Aussies, hands off hasty death. Give the socialists the chop. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. Getting a bit paranoid, I think, about Dash. Anyway, you can hear him tomorrow morning at nine on City Limits. Today and next week, the focus is Mexico with Ralph Newmark 
the Director of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. First question, who were those civilizations before the Europeans arrived? Well, look, Mexico obviously has a very, very long history, well before the Europeans went there, uh, came there in the uh, 16th century, 1500s. What's interesting about Mexico is that there were, you know, waves and waves of different civilizations going way back. I mean, there's probably the first major one that we tend to recognise as the Olmecs. But then there were uh, people like the, uh, the, the there were the Zapotecs, uh, the uh, Mixtecs. But the the other great civilization of the early period, of course, is the Maya. And the Maya, of course, in southern Mexico, had a very complex civilization. They were brilliant astronomers. Uh, it was just really high. They had language, written language. When the uh, Spanish turned up, the dominant group at that period, who really only had been dominating Mexico for 200 years prior to 1500, were the Aztecs, or Mexica, we call them, really, which Mexico is named after them. This group were really quite interesting. They were a nomadic group who um, had drifted down from northern Mexico, probably in the 13-1400s, and settled around the Great Lake uh, which is in the central highlands of Mexico, which we call Lake Te- uh, Texcoco. And they had a great prophecy, apparently. The mythology of this is that they would make a, build a giant city where they saw an eagle with a serpent in its mouth on a cactus. And this, if you notice, the Mexican flag is the picture in the middle. So it's an Aztec mythological um, image of the great eagle with the snake in its mouth. They settled around the lake, they built up a civilization that was quite actually um, extraordinary, dominated much of Mexico, and this was the group, of course, that confronted the Spanish when they arrived. I think everyone is always sort of, all sorts of myths grow, that of course the Spanish were supermen, that 600 Spaniards could beat an empire of 25 million. Well, the point was... The empire that they encountered was a tribute empire that sort of ran on violence and protection. So the idea was that you would give the Aztecs, uh, people in the outer areas would give the Aztecs tribute every year and then everything would be all right. So you actually built up a whole country that sort of hated you, but except, you know, that sort of paid their dues, sort of mafia-type sort of setup. And the one particular group who were never really subjugated by the Aztecs, the uh, Tuxcalans. But when someone comes up and forms an alliance against someone you hate. In other words, it was like a house of cards. It only needed someone who perhaps had a slightly different technology for all the people who hated the Aztecs to join the Spaniards and overthrow them. Of course, they didn't realise that what they'd get after that was much worse than the Aztecs, much worse. And then, of course, they brought smallpox with them. This is really interesting, actually. There's little doubt that the conquest, the demographic collapse in Mexico... In that 16th century, so from when the, um, the Spaniards turned up to around about 1600 or more, it was unbelievable. It went from, well, we don't know exactly, but something like 20-odd million down to about one or two million in 100 years. That's incredible. I think what's really interesting is much of it was things like smallpox and influenza, but not, not, it wasn't the reason the, actually the Aztecs collapsed. I think some people say, well, you know, the Spanish didn't know they were bringing smallpox. In other words, if you say that the diseases were the reason of the collapse and the takeover, it takes away the idea, and it's not true. I mean, there were obviously certain areas that were hit by smallpox, but most of 
the fall of the empire was due to allies, indigenous allies, who hated the Aztecs joining the Spanish. Interestingly enough, even that endemic collapse in that 16th century, we now think that, in fact, it wasn't an imported virus. It was a domestic virus, a bit like AIDS and Ebola, because what the Spanish did was completely change the ecology of the Mexico, setting up haciendas, completely different to the sort of, if you like, in many ways, the sort of ecological balance that existed in the Aztecs. And when you start breaking down virgin forest, you release viruses that are actually quite endemic to little creatures and you know whether whatever the creatures might be but when they when you're exposed to these viruses often you can get a very virulent and it seems that probably an indigenous virus killed most people in the 16th century and of course it took a long time to kill off that many people it didn't happen in a couple of years no no we're talking over a sort of a century or so yeah how did the spanish get on with the people that were left after they arrived them? Did they pacify them in very violent ways? Well, there was a couple of problems, actually. The idea of conquest being legitimised was obviously done on grounds of religion. These were the days before direct racism, in a sense, scientific racism. But basically, let's face it, the Catholicism of the uh, Spanish was seen in a way of obviously doing, you know, bringing God's word as they saw it. I mean, the, obviously, the indigenous people had wonderful pantheons of gods that they explained the world through. But the problem was, and I mean, one aspect is very interesting, is that when you are rationalising conversions and a takeover and justifying your conquest, a couple of habits that were endemic in Mexico, which were very mild and very, very minor, one is cannibalism. I think cannibalism is fascinating because it is one of the great no-no's of Western civilization. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm simply saying that there was small, highly ritualistic cannibalism. This was not like living off other people or anything like that. It was simply in certain ceremonies, sacrifice and cannibalism, which really justified that these weren't humans in a way, in a sense that whatever you did to these people, we must convert them, killing if need be, was quite justified because of these sort of Christian values that, well, you know, on the surface we might feel are okay, but it was completely misunderstood the context. Look, in the end, the problem is you didn't want to get rid of all of them because you needed labour. Exactly. There's no way the Spaniards were going to get their hands dirty. So my point was it was not in their interest to kill everyone. And what was the labour force doing? Well, ultimately they set up haciendas and uh, set up... What they did is the Spanish crown gave large tracts of land to conquistadors or other Spanish um, noble people. And this really set up the underdevelopment of Latin America where you had one family or one person, always a man, of course, controlling vast estates, haciendas. And, of course, the indigenous people were locked in in having to give labour to their comienda system where where basically it was a labour relationship so they could stay on the land and uh, grow whatever but they had to work for the uh, hacienda owner. And what were they growing? Uh, Well corn, I mean basically corn mining too of course becomes a major issue but basically for the profits of the conquerors. And lots of profits went back to Spain? Absolutely, well of course the things the Spanish really wanted was gold and silver the Aztecs had that. Certainly when it comes down to Peru, you get even more of that. 
But there was an absolute you know, lust for golds and gold and minerals. Now, I, I did read in those couple of centuries after colonisation, I suppose you'd call it colonisation, mm-hmm. that education was encouraged and even the Indigenous languages were taught. Is that correct or not? Well, look, I think the, the church comes in here. It's very interesting, actually, because the church as the destroyer of culture, uh, in a sense, is the vanguard of converting people to Christianity, but also valued in many ways when people converted to Christianity, then they were human. Some enlightened churchmen, I mean, the most famous is Bartolomeu de las Casas, the um, great bishop of Chiapas and San Cristobal. Uh, he was, I think, a very enlightened. But there, and then again, there were others who burnt all uh, any uh, Mayan books they could find. Lander, Archbishop Lander, was a, was a brute in that case. Languages were, well, the point is, I think when you get conquest, you get resistance, even if it's under the, the gaze. Things like combining indigenous religions with a superficiality, perhaps, of, of, um, of Catholicism to sort of survive, really. There were certainly some people who wanted, you know, were interested in the anthropology of these people, and uh, books were created from survivors to tell them what was life like beforehand. Uh, but ultimately it was an exploitative relationship, 100%, really, except, as I say, for some scholars. Intermarriage encouraged? It had to happen. I mean, uh, let's be honest, I think Mexico is predominantly a mestizo nation, which basically refers to people of both Spanish mixed origins. I don't like the word race. I would say sort of cultural genetic origins. Simply this, it was a man's world, and majority, there weren't many Spanish women. Of course, this led to uh, to that type of... And, of course, many of them rapes. I mean, this wasn't necessarily by consent. But uh, marriage as such, not... I mean, marriage would be really um, a byproduct. And uh, certainly, mestizos could marry mestizo, but I don't think that many Spanish people would marry necessarily, unless they were perhaps deemed of, what's the word, uh, you know, aristocratic pre-Columbian descent. To marry a Spanish woman is one thing, but I think you can have kids and rape uh, the uh, indigenous people, that's for sure. When we've talked about other countries in in Latin America, you've talked about the the local aristocracy getting sick of sending all their money back to Spain. That's happened there as well? Yeah, this is the independence period we're talking Mm. about. Um, what, What was clear by the 19th century, so we're looking here at the early 1800s, or late 17, early 1800s. I mean, ideas of the issue of Spain, uh, which really was a a declining empire at this stage, turning the screws of raising more taxation. We call these the Bourbon reforms of the 1700s. The elites in Mexico, just like in Venezuela, under Bolivar, and right down to Chile, everywhere in the Spanish America putting Brazil quite aside, uh, we're looking really at the idea that, you know, after 300 years, basically, the elites, were most of them were born in America, did seem anachronistic. Interestingly enough, the Mexican independence movement was sort of led by a couple of priests, but again, um, seeing the Spanish as an anachronism, Morales and Hildago, and basically Mexico gets its independence in that early 19th century. It's said to be, you know, 1810... It was a pretty fragmented independence in a way. The country wasn't, in a sense, homogeneous, but it, it is, in a sense, declared an independent country under their own elites at that period. 
talk about the relationship with the northern neighbour in those early years. <laughs> well, of course, this is a cluster fascinating in the, the story that we really, um, modern, more recent contemporary people relate to. In North America, obviously, the British had set up a string of colonies way up in the northeast. And, of course, in 1776, these colonies break away from Britain to become what we call the United States. But the United States at that period really only controlled very much that northeastern corner, the 13 colonies. Much of the what we call the west of the United States, right up really to California, uh, into Oregon, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, was all part of Mexico in the 19th century, up until 1848. So basically, the first half of the 19th century, virtually half the United States, or a good third of it, was Mexican. What the US is all about, I mean, in the sense of its great move to the West, I mean, this was called the Manifest Destiny. It basically was a story throughout the 19th century of the United States moving West. Of course, part of the problem was not just Mexico, which was really the, the west-southwest. In the middle of the country, there were a whole lot of people living there, which <laughs> tend to be forgotten, and these, of course, were the indigenous North Americans. And the answer to that was to take their land, put them on reservations, or kill them if they put up too much of a fight. And really, it was one of the great land grabs, but Australians are no strangers to this. So what I find really interesting is that where, when you look in detail at the reservations of the North American Indigenous people as people move across the plains, you know, Midwest and uh, towards the West, is the sorts of social breakdowns that take place, domestic violence, alcohol abuse. These are all classic examples of cultural destruction and people being put in concentration camps. One thing, the uh, and the great champions of this were, of course, the cavalry, the US, who seemed to, people in Hollywood seem to think were the great heroes of the United States. Well, they were mainly the agents of killing and uh, taking the land off indigenous people. One of their tactics was very much to humiliate the chiefs in front of their people. So here's a great chief, in terms of the structure of the society, to you know, put him in chains or slap him around or something. You know, this completely was demoralising. And I go, you see these manifestations, of course, as in... I mean, alcoholism, these are real problems. And I don't think as Australians we're very, um, we're strangers to this. Well, after the, it was called the Mexican and American, American War. War. Mm. What was the state of Mexico? What land did it have? Been? Well, this war is really interesting. I mean, Texas has to be put a little bit aside. I mean, what was in Texas up until about 1830s, you had the situation where the mi migration of what you might say non-Mexican people was quite dramatic south-central Texas, even people from Europe, German, Moravians. Texas a bit separate, but they had their own issue and they fought a war uh, to sort of stalemate and declaring themselves independence. But the US fought a major war between 1846 and 48 against Mexico and basically won. Mexico by 1848 lost 51% of its territory. It's huge, so isn't it? We're talking an enormous amount. Well, I mean, more than half its territory was taken by the US in these 46, 48 wars, and we're including states of all of uh, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, obviously Texas joined in. It's a hell of a lot of territory. I think the animosity between the countries can be understood in that 
It's not that long ago, actually. One wonderfully interesting little footnote, if I've got time for that, is that there had been many people migrating to the United States from Ireland in the 1840s because of the potato famine. Now, when the Irish arrived in um, the United States, they weren't seen as white people, not only because of the Catholicism, because there was all sorts of incredibly racist connotations. And in fact, being a Catholic at that period was very much um, to be persecuted, almost at the level indeed of the the black uh, Afro-Americans, African-Americans. What you saw happen was there was quite a number of Irishmen that joined the Mexican army. They defected. They had been put in the US army and actually jumped to the Mexican army uh, for lots of reasons. Obviously, Catholic uh, were treated well instead of being, you know, like dogs. And these were known as the San Patricio Brigade. I just incredible story, actually, or the St. Patrick's Brigade. And they're great artillerymen, apparently. Of course, the problem is they lost the war. And boy, did the US pay out on them. There were all of them were branded on their heads with D for deserter. Most were hanged after the torture. I mean, you know, deserters are not treated well. <laughs> so these Irish blokes really got it, a real serve. That's a bit of a footnote, but generally Mexico was defeated, lost about half its territory, and that does set up, if you like, this uh, well and truly continuing animosity between the two countries. What did it do to the economy? The economy, in a sense, of Mexico was still had this sort of idea that it was, in the 19th century, it was living off... Hennigan, particularly down in um, the southern areas, which was um, fibre trade, etc. Corn, of course, it didn't destroy the economy, but the economy itself had been obviously bubbling along very uh, low level. I mean, let's face it, there were not massive Mexican populations up in the north in these areas. There were missions, etc. Nevertheless, I think obviously losing half your territory... (laughs) has a major effect on, well, psychologically and economically. But he wasn't the major economic earner up there at that time. Of course, 1849, uh, uh, after the takeover, we get gold rush in California, but that's in the US period, you see. Mexico didn't lose it in a knowing way. What we haven't spoken about yet is slavery in Mexico. Right. Well, not a lot. They didn't need it. I mean, I think this is really interesting because... The way it operated, you, you see, the, the relationships, as opposed to, say, Cuba, Brazil, where the indigenous societies there were more hunter-gatherers, were not systematically had a sort of labour relationships. I think this is the big difference. On the mainland, and particularly in Mexico and Peru, the evolutions of the empire, say the Aztec ultimately and the Inca Empire, were that there was slavery, yes, but... It wasn't as important as labour provided under sort of arrangements. In other words, to pay tribute, in, particularly in Mexico, you would provide the Aztecs with corn and feathers and whatever your region was good at. In res- um, re- response to not being <laughs> come down and beat the hell out of you. In, in the same in Peru, in a sense that every village had to send people to work for the empire, but it was only for a year. I mean, when I... So it's sort of, it's not really slavery, it was since it was called, you know, a labour draft. The point was the populations, even though it dropped from 20 to 2, it was still a high population, and but, but used to 
working, if you like, and working within a sort of dominant hierarchical relationship. There was some African slavery in Peru and Mexico, which we're talking about. And it's rather interesting. There are remnants very much of African culture in Mexico, but you probably wouldn't see it because they didn't really need African slaves and the locals would work in relationship to the uh, Spanish taking over the, the hierarchical relationships. What was bubbling along for the next 50 or 60 years that resulted in a revolution? Well, the, the story of Mexico really in this 19th century, I think around about 1820s, 22, it, it starts to sort of form an identity as a sort of state. General Santa Ana, who incidentally was the guy who beat the US at the Alamo, <laughs> This was one battle. They only won one battle, but they lost. Well, you won the battle, lost the war, you know. And the US, of course, used this as, you know, that's like, it's still here today, you know, remember the Alamo, which is, you know, an anti-Mexican slogan of, of saying, you know, look what they, because they killed a lot of people, you know, and some famous people, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, I think all the, you know, the people who became Hollywood legends were killed at the Alamo. But Santa Ana was a great, was a general. I mean, he was obviously very authoritarian. The story of 19th century Mexico is fascinating because in many ways, well, first of all, no, really interesting, in the 1860s, Mexico gets into debt. France, particularly, who had enormous debt with Mexico, decided when Mexico wouldn't pay that they would invade and take over Mexico. That was an incredible story. This is the, um, the great sort of period of Maximilian Carlotta. What happened was that the European debtors led by France invaded Mexico in the 1860s. Notice that was a time when the US was having its civil war. So the US was a bit preoccupied to say Well, the they'd already beaten them in the, the war in a few years previously. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the US did in the 19th century have a very strict policy that Europe could not come back and recolonize. The Monroe Doctrine, we call that. So, but the point, so that would have been the US would come and help Mexico, uh, you know, theoretically, but of course, because they're having their civil war, they certainly didn't. What happened was they looked around Europe, the French bankers and others, for a European aristocrat who I suppose was looking for a gig. <laughs> they often didn't have much to do. They found this Austrian guy, Maximilian, and they put him on the throne in Mexico. It's just unbelievable. But it happened. And, of course, this again, Mexico's, in a sense, having a war does do a lot for um, national identity. And so the Great War, I'm Cinco de Mayo, which is, a, is when they beat the French in a battle. And ultimately, under Juarez, they beat the French and Maximilian's executed. He was a sort of an interesting guy. He was a fairly enlightened fellow, but of course, you know, he was an imposter, outrageous. So basically, Mexico regains its uh, integrity in the um, late 1860s. Uh, then uh, there is what we call the reformer. What happens here, and this is a very, this is a sort of a sweep of liberalism in this late 19th century period. What's bad about this? Well, on one level, it's very anti-church, anti-clerical. These liberals are very influenced by ideas of you know, individual anti-corporatism. Churches are seen as corporate entities locking up large tracts of land. But the problem is when, when the liberals of the late 19th century move against the church, they move against all corporate ownership of land. It's a liberal revolution, the reformer. And of course, there are two types of corporate land in Mexico, the church land, but also the common ejidos of the indigenous. You see, 
communal land was still surviving. Not every bit of land was obviously given to the Hacendero types. And what you got here was actually a selling off of common lands that the indigenous people had managed to sort of keep. It wasn't large areas, but certainly... And because it was anti-liberal, you know, individual, you can buy it if you like. Of course, those that could buy it were usually conned out of it by Mexico City swindlers offering them money. So with moving land into the market economy, this is the most fundamental of issues about indigenous versus European conquest ultimately, is that land is property you can sell. I mean, we live in this society here. But indigenous Americans, land was not a saleable property. It was owned by the comp- the group, ultimately by Mother Earth, whoever the land god might have been. This is such a fundamental change. The liberals hated this. And so this is really what the 1910 Mexican Revolution is partly of, because by 1910, there is this liberal dictator, Porfirio Diaz, who really sits on the uh, Mexican presidency for about 30, 40 years, from about 1870s through to 1910. What we get in 1910 is the famous Mexican Revolution. The problem with this revolution is it's two revolutions in one. On the elite level, it was other members of the elite resenting the fact that one of them was sitting on the throne, so to speak, for too long. In other words, it was a fight amongst the elite to control the country, where one guy had monopolised it, uh, Porfirio Diaz. But this talk of liberty and the, the, the slogan is very interesting. Land and liberty, it was sort of got mixed up and some indigenous and uh, more, you know, what you might call people of the left, saw this actually as a real revolution, not just an elite changing musical chairs. And people like Emiliano Zapata from Morales State in the north, people like Pancho Villa actually read it as a real revolution. So what you got is both, it was like a concertina. All the sides get together to get rid of the old dictator, and they do in 1910-11. But once you win, the alliance breaks down because they had different. And the thing went on for 20 years. One million people, Mexicans, died. And that's Dr. Ralph Newmark, who's the director of the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. And next week we'll be hearing part two of the history, the past, the present and possible future for Mexico. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Now the final part of my interview with the director of the African Centre for Biosafety, Marion Hayat. It is a non-profit organisation working to protect Africa's biodiversity, traditional knowledge, 
seed systems, genetic diversity, food production systems, culture and diversity from the threats of genetic engineering and industrial agriculture. Her talk in Melbourne recently focused on colonising Africa with GM food and crops and the Australian connection. How do you fight such a huge combination of business, governments, interests? It's really difficult. One has to adopt a multi-pronged approach um, and believe that resistance has to take place at all levels. So at the international level, we form alliances with good people, food activists, people working in the food sovereignty movement, people working at the international level, international negotiations. So we work at that level or through partners at the regional level, through regional networks in Africa. Are there any governments who are resisting or are they all getting talked into it? No, there's no governments resisting. The prospect of foreign investment coming in, because a lot of African governments are very donor-dependent. They're dependent on a great deal of money coming through development agencies. I was just wondering with the, the influence of China in Africa now, how that fits in with the push by the West for GM. China is interesting because China is what we call the new hubs of capital and it's formed an alliance with South Africa, China, uh, India, Brazil and Russia and they're part of the BRICS and so they're like a countervailing force to the old, the G7 countries and wanting to offer financing through a different kind of world bank and they're saying they want to offer that without any strings attached, without any political interference in foreign policies in other countries. So that's the one aspect. But what China is doing in Africa is not in agriculture. they involved in infrastructure development that is being traded off for the extraction of our mineral wealth. So they've been building roads, highways, schools, clinics... And people are very divided about how they feel about this because African governments have done nothing in terms of infrastructure development. China's doing that, but it's coming at a price. But I can't say to you that China is in any way comparable to the U.S. in terms of the way the U.S. is orchestrating the Green Revolution and the gene revolution push in Africa. I mean, China doesn't meddle in that way. I think it does bilateral deals with governments, and so far people are not finding it threatening of their livelihoods, so we can't say that China is behind any kind of large-scale land grabs, but Japan has been and is party to the pro-Savannah project with Brazil in Mozambique, for example. But um, for now, it's still very much the old post-colonial scenario with the U.S. calling the shots. And then the new player on the block is the Gates Foundation. And they play a central role in coordinating a lot of Green Revolution projects. And they fund heavily GM, particularly what we call so-called orphan crops, poor man's crops, staple foods of non-commercial crops like the banana and the cowpea which um, has big Australian connections. Can you explain that? Yeah. It appears as if Australian public researchers have become involved with 
um, U.S. public researchers and African public researchers to develop both a, a variety of GM banana as well as GM cowpea. So I'll start with banana first. On the GM banana, um, there's a Professor Dale from the Queensland University of Technology. Um, he's in partnership with a Ugandan public research institution together with CGIAR. It's also Gates Foundation funded a string of public uh, breeding platforms around the country, around the world to develop a particular variety of GM banana that will increase uh, beta-carotene in the banana uh, to be fed to starving Ugandans who are suffering also from uh, blindness. And the idea is that the increased beta-carotene in the banana will convert into much-needed vitamin A in the bodies of these Africans. So um, what's happened is that... um, Some activists from Australia also have found out that the genes used to create this banana by Dale and his um, colleagues um, was actually biopirated, stolen or unlawfully acquired from varieties of banana in um, the South Pacific, indigenous people. That's the one aspect. Second, that field trials are being undertaken in Australia Uh, And the intention is to export the banana from Australia to the U.S. to a university called Iowa State University and there to be fed in a feeding trial to 20 young university students for a cost of $900 in the absence of any food safety studies. The Ugandan farmers have no idea this is going on. There's been no consultation. Nobody asked them if they want this. Ugandan activists are arguing that a simple solution to vitamin deficiency is to ensure that people eat a more balanced diet. What they've done is they've targeted a local variety that is quite starchy and uh, is steamed and cooked and eaten every day as a staple. So this is the GM Banana Project. Activists in Australia have been opposing this for a long time. Surely there would have been a, a legal case against this? You said the, the information was stolen, is that what you said? There could be a biopiracy case, most mm. certainly, because of it's more than information. It's taking, it's, you know, taking genetic heritage from communities without their consent and then using that to produce another species in respect of which you hope to commercialize and sell and market without people knowing what you've done, without there being any prior consent without any consultation. So there's a number of issues and flaws. So many groups are taking it up. The Australian groups have taken it up. The groups in Uganda have taken it up. Other groups in Africa as well. And the students at Iowa State University have taken it up. And they've asked for a dialogue and a discussion with the scientists there to air some of the grievances and they've just been given a cold shelter. So at the moment we're unsure where the feeding studies are because we heard there was a delay and the bananas had never left Australia for some reason. So it would be very interesting to ask Professor Dale what the status is of the banana or perhaps they've put the whole project on 
hold because of the resistance from all parts of the world, one wonders. Is anyone asking him that question? Yes. The Australian groups have asked him uh, several questions. I think he's been quite evasive. I don't think they're going to give any straightforward answers to this. This is a multi-million dollar project. Research funding is dependent on it. You know, with it comes a particular kind of lifestyle, publication, speaking to a seminar, prestige. It's a whole package. I think that they would have to answer to farmers in Uganda. They would have to answer to consumers in Uganda. People eat a variety of bananas, local varieties. Issues around health care of Africans need to be resolved by Africans in Africa. We need to find our own solutions. We don't welcome these kind of imperialistic solutions imposed on us. Uh, we really resent um, the fact that scientists in the West are busy experimenting with our food, telling us that this is a solution to our blindness problems. It's very colonial in nature and it's really detested by, by Africans. And what are the major concerns about the cowpea? The cowpea is indigenous to Africa, that's the first thing. It's grown extensively by small-scale farmers. They intercrop it with maize and other grains. It's early maturing, so it's readily available while they're waiting for other crops to mature in the field, so it gives them some food. It's high in protein. It's called the poor man's meat, very drought-tolerant. It is nitrogen-fixing. It's like a miracle legume. It's farmed extensively by small-scale farmers. They recycle seed. There's a lot of sovereignty over the value chain by small-scale producers, but it's in demand, and the demand for cowpea is growing, particularly in West Africa, where there's a burgeoning urban market, and that's the market the gene giants want. They've cleverly disguised it again as a panacea to our problems, the problems small-scale farmers are facing with a particular insect called pod borer. The project is heavily funded by USAID, Rockefeller Foundation, Development Fund from the UK. You see, this is all government money. Also, the Gates Foundation gives money to an organization called African Agriculture Technology Foundation. They get like $100 million from Gates. And they're big money, high stakes. So, and then there's a history about, in regard to genetic engineering of pea, and Australian scientists, particularly a, a, a professor called Higgins, who began to experiment with a field pea many years ago. And um, when they did some tests on laboratory animals, it showed uh, lesions, suppressed Im uh, immune system responses, and they're supposed to have canned the data, but it materialized some years later in Europe. And so they haven't given up. And they're persisting, and now, they, now they've gotten onto cowpea. And it's just like a new and another wave of colonialism. Are there problems for the people with a level of debt that they're in from buying the seeds, buying the fertilisers, buying the herbicides? We know the story of what happens to the farmers in India, huge suicide rates. Are there desperate farmers also in Africa because of this? What we have in Africa is a program that 
is played out in most African countries, and it's called a farm input subsidy program, a system where government subsidizes to a large extent the seed, and farmers think they're getting the f- seed free of charge. But the price of the seed is then deducted from the harvest. And there are other scenarios where farmers are given access to credit to purchase seed and fertilizer, and they find themselves in debt because they get very low prices for the harvest, they have to pay transportation costs, all the hidden costs, and a tragic tale of debt and destruction in these kinds of systems. And so you're going to see very similar results in terms of GM. What I explained to you is in terms of non-GM, but as I said, it's the same system. But GM seed may be more expensive. But now what Monsanto has been saying is for the cowpea that is going to be, it has donated the BT gene, which has come off patent. And so what it's saying is, in other words, I'm not going to be charging royalties. But the royalties are charged more for other researchers to use your technology to develop something. If you commercialize it, you pay them. And then researchers then try to get back the investment through royalty payments or deals they make with seed companies who get it back from farmers. So what we're saying is that because you've given the seed royalty free doesn't mean you're going to be giving the seed free or the seed is going to cost anything less than conventional seed. It's going to be the same. So we're going to have the same scenario where small farmers cannot afford the price of certified seed. And they're going to have to use some pesticides initially and a lot of pesticides later when insects develop a resistance to the proteins expressed, as has happened all over the world and in South Africa with the same gene, CRY1AB. It's just like they're giving Africans a throwaway old technology that's come off patent, but they will still catch farmers in terms of the plant variety protection, the IP laws, intellectual property rights, laws that will govern certified or protected seed. Farmers will not be able to recycle any farm-safe seed of cowpea. And at the moment, they are recycling cowpea seeds. So you're looking at quite a catastrophic socioeconomic situation developing if they introduce this GM cowpea into African agriculture systems. How far off is it? It's very, very, it's around the corner. Uh, In Burkina Faso, Ghana and Nigeria, the trials are very far ahead. They're going to ask for a commercial release permit this year and try to sell seeds already next year. So it's very, very urgent. Whereas the banana is still kind of in in a trial stage, but the cowpea is ominous. It's around the corner. I don't know whether this has got anything to do with what you've been saying, but can I ask you about the Doomsday Seed Vault? Yes. Has that got anything to do with what you've been talking about? Well, that is, as I understand it, people deposit seed and germplasm for safekeeping for a doomsday scenario, and and they've they've gone all over the world to collect seed. I understand that there's been a lot of corporate investment in the maintenance of the seed vault, And that is very much concerned with issues of who owns and who has the right to publicly held germplasm. And our view is everybody has a right. Nobody has the right to put it in a vault far away and we have no access to it. But our other big issue is that 
The best way to conserve germplasm is to grow it, to grow diversity of crops, and that's the best way. We believe in in situ conservation, and that's the way that you preserve the soil, the biodiversity. You preserve indigenous crops, the diversity in nature. But do you see something sinister in this seed bank? You know, we did look into it a little bit last year. People advised us that there's no biopiracy as such that's taken place. People have deposited collections there. But they no longer have any control. And if the major agricultural, agricultural businesses start controlling all the seeds of the world, well, it doesn't matter that they've got all the, the, the old ones are there, but the people haven't got access to them anymore. I think the corporates have a lot of germplasm under their control. And if they don't have germplasm under their control, they can access it through the CGI system the, under the Food and Agriculture um, Organization. They're sitting with everything. We try to stop patent on a sorghum variety originating in Tanzania, which was accessed from uh, one of these systems. And the Brazilian government had isolated a particular gene resistant to ammonium in the, in, in the soil in Brazil. But when we tried to trace it back, we found that a university in um, the U.S., Texas A&M, had accessed that ages ago, made copies, and they have it uh, in their gene bank. So I think that a lot of the diversity has been taken already and is under the control of the multinational companies, and they acquired a lot of germplasm by buying up seed companies, and they're continuing to do that. In Africa, too, we're seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and they want the germplasm, and they want the networks. So I think that a lot has been taken already. So the question is, when some developments take place in respect of the seed, what is our position? It all comes from the public domain. Seed really shouldn't be privatized. Maybe some, some investment can be recouped the first time you sell it. But thereafter, farmers should be able to do what they want to. It should be free in the public domain for all of us to use. It's the building blocks of life. So there are big issues around publicly held germplasm, who can access it, for what purpose. In fact, the Food and Agriculture Organization, they've got a sea treaty called the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. That is 10 years old this year. In October will be the 10th anniversary. They're going to be looking again at the treaty because it has a certain set of provisions to protect the rights of farms to recycle farm-safe seed. But it's totally unimplemented in all countries in the world. Why has that happened? Why have we not taken seriously the rights of farmers? Because the rights of breeders have trumped the rights of farmers. Finally, so many issues. What's going to be the focus for you in the very near future? I think that we'll continue to work on our GM issues. I think that the new crop plants to defend our diversity, our traditional knowledge, our food systems will always be a priority for us, together with defending our seed system. So seed will continue to be a very big part of our work and to continue to expose inequities in the food system to continue to work towards dismantling corporate control and domination of our food systems and work towards sustainable solutions like agroecology, food sovereignty, 
And I know this sounds very idealistic, but, you know, overnight Germany just banned nuclear energy after decades of activism. So we should never give up. And we, it's a process and it's not a hundred mile sprint. We know it's a marathon and we'll just continue our work and take a lot of energy from our friends and alliances in Australia and elsewhere in the world and just continue. Thank you very much. A great activist there for ATGM, and that's Mariam Mayet, the director of the African Centre for Biodiversity. Biodiversity, And if you'd like to know more about what's happening in Australia, there are a number of groups. But try GM Australia Alliance and see how you go on a webpage for that. That's GM Free Australia Alliance. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. More than 140 activists, advocates and leaders across 29 countries and six continents travelled to Quezon City in the Philippines for the International People's Conference on Mining from the 29th of July to the 1st of August. Many of the delegates were victims of human rights violations resulting from state repression of communities opposed to mining. There are also former political prisoners who fought in campaigns against mining, such as Davio-based scientist Kim Gaga and Patrick Lombiai of PNG. Australia was represented by members of Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines, one being Father Claude Mastovic, Director of the Justice and Peace Centre of the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart in Australia. I recently spoke with Father Claude and asked him first whether this conference was a yearly one. This is the first one I've attended. I don't know how often they have them. Uh, it was the first time for me, and, and it was for me I went mainly to listen and learn, actually, even though I've had work with the another group called Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines. We've been concerned about mining in, in the Philippines, but also other places, but this is the first conference I attended. You know. How many people attended from which countries? About 150 people attended the conference itself. There were people from Latin America, El Salvador and uh, North America, Canada especially, there were people from uh, India and other parts of Asia, and all around the Philippines, of course, Papua New Guinea. A few of us from Australia went from this uh, Action of Peace and Development group. About at least four of us went. Uh, and there were people from Africa and, and also Europe, Turkey especially, and Belgium. And what's the aim? Well, the aim is actually to bring people together who are concerned you know, and are impacted by mining especially large-scale mining in their countries. And I don't know whether you know, but before the conference, I went with uh, some other dele delegates from other countries, from Africa and also from Japan, one from Japan, also from Belgium, to go to some of the areas where mining is taking place and it's you know, causing a lot of uh, devastation in various communities. You know. And really, the Philippines is, I think, a microcosm 
of the issues that were happening around the world with regard to large-scale mining companies. I read a figure that in 1997 there were 17 operations in the Philippines and now there are 46. Look, they, they have increased. You know, I went to a couple of areas. The, the large-scale mining is just you know, causing so much devastation. I went to uh, two area, main areas, uh, one's at the Dipio, in uh, Nueva Vizcaya, north of Manila. It's uh, probably about an eight-hour drive. And then we went to Runruno, who's another mine. Basically, we spoke to the people and listened to their stories and, you know, how they've been impacted by, you know, in terms of losing their land, destruction of the environment and everything else. One of our delegates went with us and he said when he looked at this area in Didipio, where the interesting thing is this, there's an Australian mining company called Oceana Gold. They have their head office in Collins Street in Melbourne. They present themselves, you know, as really responsible corporate, uh, corporate citizens attentive to and you know and uh, sensitive to the biodiversity there well one whole mountain there has been just destroyed it's a great big hole it's called dicky die mountain and looking at it it's like a mountain that's full of life it's had its heart ripped out this is the story you know in, in other places too where we went there was a community and uh, there's nothing there now and what did the people tell you about if they fight back against these mines? What happens to them? You know, there have been stories of people who have been assaulted, people who have sometimes been killed. I didn't go to Mindanao, and that the, the situation there is even worse. People have talked about, uh, you know, people get, being speared, being harassed by security forces, and sometimes even being murdered. There's stories of, you know, church workers, priests being killed other you know, community leaders and church workers going missing and uh, being killed. There's a nun there, in uh, a sister in Mindanao, who was at the conference herself. She did a presentation. Now, she's been threatened many times. This is the sort of the story that goes on and on and on. You go to Mindanao, half of the Indonesian military is actually in Mindanao. That's the sort of state of affairs that's there. And it's, you know, to protect, the, you know, these corporate mining companies. At one of the mining companies that we went to, they were telling us that, you know, they're blaming the small-scale miners, you know, the people, you know, the private people, for all the damage that's been done to the environment. Well, they couldn't do in 50 years what these mining companies are doing in a very short period of time. This particular company said, we've even changed the name of our human resources section to human values section. It's a bit like, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken saying, well, we call ourselves KFC now, <laughs> to hide the fact that the, the, the chicken is still, you know, pretty fatty and, you know, and everything else. You know. The devastation is visible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Great big holes. And not only that, you know, the rivers are polluted, land has been taken, you know, has been, you know, food security is threatened. The noise and the pollution affects people's health, especially of young children. And now in some of these places, and people haven't always been compensated, and some people actually refuse to go, and they're perched on the edge of a mine, and, you know, it's quite precarious. You know, they're just not going to go. Well, this is the ones I witnessed anyway. I can't talk about for everybody else, but I've, I've heard stories of the similar sorts of, sorts of things. And I would imagine in areas of high rainfall, there could be devastation from landfall, does Oh, it? absolutely. And it's, and it's happened in the past. And another thing is, you know, with regard to these typhoons that they've had, you know, the mining companies and the government really need to take responsibility for the, for what's happened. They've, you know, taken, removed the, you know, forests and all that sort of stuff. Large-scale mining had disastrous effects because there's there's nothing there to protect people anymore. You know, I've talked about the, the extrajudicial killings that, of environmental advocates and Indigenous people. We were talking to a bishop in uh, Bayambang who's the, you know, he's been quite outspoken as well at times. 
he was saying that anyone, and it happens in Australia too, you know, we've heard just in you know, the last day or so with the, with the Attorney General saying that people who, environmental advocates and so on, or who are trying to defend Indigenous people, are just these lefties and who, you know, are causing trouble. In the Philippines, they're called communists and members of the, you know, New People's Army or something like that. Can you talk about the mine in El Salvador where the company is now taking the government to court? Yes. Did you listen in with the, the woman from El Salvador? There, Antonia was uh, this young woman from El Salvador. She spoke uh, you know, through uh, an interpreter. The message coming through, and this, this was repeated in El Salvador, the, uh, mainly the message I got was, was people want no mining at all. They want to get rid of them altogether. Now, there are probably some areas that would like would tolerate it, would have it, because it might have some benefits for the community. But and this woman was saying that, uh, and which I knew beforehand anyway, was that this company, Oceana Gold, which is Australian, did have connections with Canada as well, has been pushed out by the people. People actually objected to their uh, activities there, and the government has has, uh, has supported them. Now, this company is, is uh, suing the government for $301 million compensation, lost profits and so on. This goes back to another problem is where these corporations can sue governments, but the governments can't sue the corporations for their activity. You know, this is a, a problem. But the thing is, there's, there's a hope there, you know, even though it might cost the government a lot of money, the fact that, that the government is supporting the people against this uh, large-scale mining in, in, in their country is, I think, a sign of hope. And you know, It's pretty unusual at the moment, isn't it? It is. It is. Like, you know, just going back to the Philippines and this area where I was in Didipio, there's there are other mountains in the area which will be demolished. And the people will be left with the mess. The things that take the resources and leave the people with a mess. It doesn't matter whether it's in Mindanao or Didipio or these other places. And I might say that company in El Salvador is the same one that I, you know, that is the company that I visited in Didipio, is Oceania Gold. Just give us a couple of examples of other countries where people are fighting against, not particularly gold mines, but they could be bauxite, they could be all sorts of mining. Look, yeah, look, I, I, I must say I, I wouldn't have a lot of uh, specifics, but I was listening to a, um, there's a lawyer who was uh, speaking speaking to us, uh, he's from Turkey, and he was actually said that he actually assaulted on the day he was actually heading for the plane to come to the conference, you know, and uh, he's, he showed photos of himself in other previous times, you know, bloodied face and everything else. And he was talking about how in Turkey they've had a number of... Uh, I haven't got the figures right in front of me, but they've, they've had some... In one case, I think they had about 300 people killed in a what he called a massacre. And we were sort of saying, you know, well, this is a translation problem, you know. It's a, you mean disaster, don't you? Or, you know, tra- tragedy says, no, it's a massacre because these companies are cutting corners and they know accidents are going to happen. And these are, this has only happened in recent times. These accidents are going to happen and they actually insure themselves against these uh, well, accidents. Well, they, he says they can't be called accidents because they know they're going to happen. But they, they cut corners deliberately because the profits are, are greater this way rather than protecting the workers and so on. Yeah. Just, uh, there's another interesting example in an area in, uh, in the Philippines called... Um, Duplex del Norte, I think it's called now. But uh, the people there had actually, for 14 months, barricaded this area and stopped the exploration of a a mining company in the first place, and they've gone. You know, pretty big effort. This lady came to tell me about it while we were at... um, in this, uh, in Nueva Vizcaya, and I think this is where the hope is. You know, you can stop these mining companies if you know communities don't want them, 
before they start exploration because that's, you know, once they've started, it's very hard to get them out. And we'll hear more from Father Claude Masterwick. On the program next week, he's the director of the Justice and Peace Centre of the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart in Australia, and he was one of the 140 participants at the International People's Conference on Mining, which was held in the Philippines. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. In 2010, visitors to Wyme Adelaide were enthralled by the presence of singer Mariam Hassan, also known as the voice of the Sahara. After living in Spain for the past 10 years or so, she returned to the Western Sahara refugee camps in Algeria earlier this year and died there on the 22nd of August. Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association was there in Adelaide in 2010 for her concerts. Kate, tell us about Mariam. She was a wonderful woman with a tremendous musical talent, but it wasn't fully discovered until she was really in her middle age, at least not internationally, obviously. The people around her knew she was a good singer, but When she became well-known, she was singing all over the world in musical festivals and became known as the voice of the Sahara. She was very much an activist singer and she sang about her homeland and about everything that was towards uh, getting an independent Western Sahara for her people. She tells in her uh, sort of autobiography that she had to run for her life three times in her life. First, when she was 13, she ran away from the arranged marriage that was made by her family. Another time, she was singing with some Polisario fighters, soldiers. I, I, can't, I think it might have been the Spanish authorities came and they had, she had to jump out a window and escape. And then the third time was she fled the bombing by the Moroccans in 1975 when her homeland was invaded by the Moroccan forces. So she she went to the camps then and she lived a long time in the camps. I think it was partly to do with her musical commitments. She went uh, abroad for those. But it was also part, uh, particularly when she was diagnosed with cancer, that she went for treatment to Spain. And she lived in, in Spain for at least ten, the last 10 or 15 years of her life. But even though she was unwell for a lot of that time, she still performed? Oh, yes. She, she couldn't really not do it. it was, music was really in her bones. And, and I remember when she came here for the WOMAD Festival uh, in Womadelaide, I was asked if I could bring the makings of Saharawi tea because they were very much in need of some traditional refreshment. So I took 
everything in the teapot and the little stove for heating the water and all the rest to her hotel room. And they were all having a little rehearsal in her room. As well as that, that I brought a little plastic tub of dates. She immediately took it and started tapping on it like a drum. <laughs> like there was, if there was anything around her that could make music, she would make music with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just completely part of her. And that tea ceremony, Kate, it's it's a wonder to watch, isn't it? Oh, yes, indeed. The main lubricant of their social time together uh, is, is making the tea and pouring it and to, from a height to make it go frothy and then you sort of do it again and then do it, you know, warm it up again and, and make it go frothy again, pour it all back in the pot add the sugar and do it again and you know yes, it goes on and on and then eventually it's ready to drink and you drink it in small glasses finally they get gathered up taken back and the whole process goes on traditionally it should be done three times you you, you have to have three cups of tea for a proper tea ceremony what does it mean do you know this is what they say. Some Saharawis say it's been made up for tourists, but I, <laughs> I think uh, it, it, it's nice anyway. The first cup traces life. The second one is as sweet as love. And the third one is as soft as death. As it gets, you go through, the um, character of the tea changes. Can you talk about some of the lyrics of her songs? what she was singing about. The ones that I know, there are some that are really just little kind of religious ones that uh, I don't know very much about. But the more recent releases, there's one called Shuka, which means the thorn. It's, it's not all that appealing in a way, but it's really very powerful. She has a kind of dialogue with a recording of... Gonzalez, the old Spanish president, who had promised that he would give a vote of self-determination to the Saharawi people, and he made a speech, and she's got little bit clips from the speech, and then she sings, Felipe, Felipe. She's sort of dialoguing with him and kind of pointing out how he didn't keep his promise. I suppose it's a big message of that song. But she's also got ones about there's just a nice happy one about a bride getting ready for a wedding and things like that. So it's, it's not all political. But the next album was called uh, Elayun Egdat, which apparently means uh, Elayun on fire. Elayun is the uh, main city of Western Sahara, the capital city. And it followed on after the um, big protest camp called Gidei Mizik, which was broken which was very peaceful, happy camp for some weeks. And then the Moroccan authorities decided to put an end to it just at the point when the negotiations between the protesters and the another group of the authorities were coming to an agreement. The police suddenly moved in and did a very strong um, breaking up of the camp. Then that made the Saharawis really upset and there was then rioting in the town. A lot of people got hurt. Hundreds got taken in for questioning. Two people died. 
and cars were set on fire and buildings were trashed and all sorts of things happened. So uh, that was the reference to the LIU in, in, on fire in flames. She's sort of uh, commemorating all of those events. Oh, there's another one about uh, two girls who were mistreated by the police. They, they were feisty young girls who were also standing up for their people and their rights, but they didn't really deserve to be tortured and then taken <clears throat> to the city outskirts and dumped naked to find their own way home. Quite a common little trick of the Moroccan police. They do that to, to people. And so she, uh, she sings about those two girls as well. I'd imagine because of her political activism, she wouldn't have been allowed back into the occupied territories, but she did go back to the camps. When, oh, yes. I don't the... know that she uh, ever tried to even go back to mm. the occupied territory. Yes, and she would visit the camps quite regularly, and they would record music there and have festivals there. And then at the very end, she decided she wanted to be with her people when she died. She spent the last week or two in the camps with her family. What's your lasting memory of her from meeting her in Adelaide? Yes, this kind of fantastic strength, really. The, the sort of the power of her voice is one, you know, expresses this. But it was also the inner strength that you could feel from her and her determination. She did not give in lightly to her illness. Before she died, she recorded a very sad lament, really, saying how difficult it was to say goodbye and how there were just times when the body engulfs you and you can't do anything about it. And uh, But she had hopes for the future. The words in that little song are, sow art and reap a harvest for the children of a people who have planted honour and dignity for their descendants. It doesn't come across quite so well in English, but this was the thing that she was wanting to do this for the future. And dignity is a word that is very frequently used of the Sahrawi people, and I think Mariam embodied that as well as any Sahrawi I've known. And looking to the future, the Polisario Front and the Geneva Convention, what's the connection there? Yes, it's an interesting uh, development that happened this uh, summer, or the European summer, that although the Polisario Front has always said it would, uh, it would observe the uh, clauses of the Geneva Convention, they have just been accepted as a full signatory by the Swiss authorities. This is very good because it sounds like a tiny thing, but it's the formality of it has a lot of implications legally, and it means that various kinds of law apply to them, international humanitarian law, for example. It means that, that although they've been claiming that the exploitation of their natural resources was illegal, it gives a much firmer basis to be able to claim that and to be able to claim that the agreement of the Sahrawi people needs to be obtained from their official representative, which is the Polisario Front. Did the Moroccans try to circumvent this? 
I don't know if they tried to stop it before it happened, but it, it, they definitely objected once it had happened. And they wrote to the Swiss uh, government and protested about this. And they said it was a very dangerous precedent that they'd set. And they uh, claimed that they, Switzerland had th- uh, compromised its neutrality. Switzerland's neutrality is extremely important to them. So they were very keen to defend their position and say that they definitely hadn't uh, compromised their neutrality. They looked at the application that had been made. Everything was correct. And so accepting it was, you know, just a formality, really, they said. And it wasn't anything to do with taking sides in the dispute. And another official registration is the Sahara Association for Victims of Human Rights Abuses. Where does that go to and what does what are the implications of that? Well, what, that's an interesting one because they have been trying to register their organisation, as indeed most of the Sahrawi associations in occupied Western Sahara try to register. And in some cases, it's really important for them to have official registration. For example, the the group dealing with uh, disabled people, if they're properly registered, they can they are entitled to get all kinds of grants and assistance that uh, wouldn't be available to them if they're just unofficial. It's a rather important first step that the, an or a Sahrawi organisation has been allowed to officially register. Quite wise, this one I'm not sure. I think that it's got a very strong leader in Brahim Dahan, who's the brother of Aisha Dahan, who visited Australia a few years ago, as some people may remember. So maybe it's partly because Brahim has been a very good advocate for his cause. But, but the Moroccans have been making various promises for a long time. They're, very, they're much better at making promises than uh, carrying them through. Finally, they've been taken to task about this by groups such as Human Rights Watch, the American uh, human rights organization. You know, on their side, they, it was necessary for them to actually do something instead of just saying that they were going to do it. So that this is the one that they've chosen to do. And as the director of Human Rights Watch said, it's particularly interesting that they've accepted this one because... The name refers to grave violations committed by the Moroccan state against Sahrawis. So the actual name of the organization is, you know, one that, if you like, is against the state. And so it's it's fighting for people's rights of victims of, of abuses. So that has been an impediment in the past for them to accept this one. Other organizations that may just be called something like, I don't know, the Sahrawi Society for the Protection of Their Cultural Rights or something like that doesn't implicate the Moroccan state quite so explicitly. So it is a really important step forward. However, there are a lot of organizations in the occupied territory. We were simply overcome by the plethora of these organizations. They keep when I went there as a part of a delegation, some of the time we felt as if we were sort of a visiting panel that um, was hearing grievances from everyone. Because all of these 
different groups would line up to try and meet with us and explain their situation. So whether all of those other organizations will now get registered, you know, we can only wait and see what happens. Well, two positive moves, Kate, and, and also a sad day. But it's a very sad to lose Mariam, yes, definitely. She was a wonderful, a wonderful person. And you've been listening to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association talking mainly about the life of Mariam Hassan. And we'll finish the program today with the voice and music of Mariam.